from RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie, Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. The next week is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment. It's going to be our 9-11 moment. Uh, As a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves? The virus doesn't discriminate, but this country does. Um, And when America sneezes, uh, black people get pneumonia. When I saw that seven animals, including some tigers and lions at the Bronx Zoo, tested positive for COVID-19, I couldn't help think about how Joe Exotic might be feeling, Brian. They have a heart and a soul and a mind. I've learned from them. But Carol Baskin keeps saying, I can't have these tigers. I have to hold my hands up. I know what you're referring to. I have yet to see it. I know everybody has watched this Tiger King thing. It is on my list. But I'm afraid I have not got to it yet. Tell me about oh, it. Why is it such listen, a big hit? Oh, no, moment? listen, it is the ultimate lockdown binge. And when you want to get away from the world of COVID-19 to something unimaginable, really, and just totally daft. And for anybody who hasn't watched it, who is in the minority like Brian at the moment, Joe Exotic is a zookeeper with a particular love for tigers. He's a country music star, a failed politician and also a convicted felon. Um whose extravagant colour for life is played out on a new documentary series on Netflix. And it's what the world is talking about, as well as COVID-19, of course. Yeah, and I think we're all becoming big friends with our box sets and our Netflix and everything else. At the moment, I'm stuck on Succession. I don't know if you've seen that one yet, Jackie. No, Very, very good. Good drama series. Two series, about eight, eight or nine episodes in each one. It's a HBO series. I would highly recommend it. It's very, very good. But I'll be looking for okay. recommendations soon because we're burning through that one. Like everybody else, we're all going through our box sets at record exactly. pace these days while we go like, through our I isolation. Tiger King over the course of the weekend, like two days. It was that binge worthy. So go and watch it yeah. and come back to me and see what you think. Um, there were very... Um, frightening words though in all seriousness from the Surgeon General um, that the United States is bracing for a Pearl Harbor moment. The next week is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment. It's going to be our 9-11 moment. Uh, It's going to be the hardest moment for many Americans in their entire lives and we really need to understand that if we want to flatten that curve and get through to the other side, everyone needs to do their part. Really, really tough time coming. That is because the scientists are predicting that this peak of deaths could come in the US over the coming weeks. So a very worrying time, a very scary time, and very high up officials, it has to be said, including Donald Trump at some points, will also come out with pretty dire warnings for the weeks ahead. can never be happy when so many people are dying, but we're going to be very proud of the job we did to keep the death down to an absolute minimum, the least it could have happened with this terrible, terrible virus. Actually, one of the interesting ones that I noticed was on Sunday, he wasn't due to give a White House press conference. And the White House had said, we will only give an update if there is something newsworthy and new information to impart. Last minute, an impromptu, they decided that they would give a press conference. So Donald Trump held 
as we've discussed in the past, a very lengthy, over an hour long press conference from the White House, Mm -hmm. focusing in very hard on this drug, hydroxychloroquine, which was a malaria drug that's widely available. And he's really holding this drug up on a pedestal as, you know, being great and it will help people. And uh, not quite saying it's a cure, but it would certainly help people. There was apparently rows within his administration where the medical doctors are saying, no, this hasn't been tested. We can't publicly announce that this is some kind of cure. But then on the more official side and Donald Trump himself pushing this drug. And last night in his most recent press conference, very much saying, well, you know, what have people got to lose? So that's what we're seeing here, this constant evolution and this flip-flopping from Donald Trump. He has been realistic in the past. He has warned of major deaths coming. He has warned of a big, big crisis, a big, serious situation. But then he reverts back to his hope and optimism of drugs and treatments and talking about reopening the economy and getting the country back up and running maybe sooner than a lot of his officials and experts would like. In terms of the election, um, on January 12th this year, I wrote a piece for the RT website. Key dates you need to know in the countdown to the US election. Ah, you can tear that up. (laughs) I was literally, that's just going to be thrown out the window now because primaries, caucuses, it's it's all just up in the air really at the moment. It's everywhere. And what we have gotten, actually, as a result of this, is a new Super Tuesday. So we spoke about the Super Tuesday, which was in early March, and then there was Super Tuesday 2.0. Now we're going to have another Super Tuesday in June, because what's happening there is that Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and Washington, D.C., where I am, were all due to vote anyway on Super Tuesday, uh, June 2nd. Now, because of this, Connecticut, Delaware, Indiana, Maryland, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island have added their names on that day as well. These were all supposed to take place over the coming weeks, but of course they've all been moved because of COVID-19. It means you're going to have 11 Democratic primary contests in the one day, the second biggest round of voting that we've seen since Super Tuesday. So as I say, a new Super Tuesday created. But look, I don't want to be Mr. Negativity here, but that's June. Will the country be back up and running by June? Will people be able to physically walk in to polling booths and cast their in-person ballots, which is the current hope, by June? And then, of course, the flip side of this, there is a way of moving away from in-person balloting. You move more to absentee balloting and mail balloting, but that has actually become quite controversial here as well. And since we last spoke too, of course, the Democratic National Convention has also been postponed. Yeah, that's right. That was supposed to take place in mid-July. It's now been moved to mid-August. Again, me putting on, don't want to be negative, but just saying by mid-August <laughs> will everything be up and running again. And then if you look at something like the Democratic Convention, do they need to have it in person? I mean, the idea of the convention is that all these delegates that we've spoken about repeatedly would physically gather in the one room and they would formally cast the ballots on behalf of the voters of each state that elected them to do that. And, you know, if it's going to be a case that it's going to be Joe Biden, which it very, very much likes, looks like it is, would you argue that it is irresponsible to pack this convention centre in Wisconsin with thousands of people to effectively do something that we all know the eventual outcome anyway? Now, of course, the Democratic Party would say, yes, you should do this. It's part of the process. It's also great for them for publicity. The speeches get all the news coverage. It's a great campaign launch for the Democratic candidate. So right now that's been moved to mid-August. The Republican convention is due to take place the week after, but we'll either go ahead, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, the whole landscape of the election really is changing and we'll get to that in a moment. But I think for this week's 
refresher, kind of we should go into the state of play here in terms of the Democratic nomination, since other things have been at the forefront of our minds for a while here on States of Mind. We were talking before about 1991 delegate votes are needed to win the Democratic nominee. Joe Biden at the moment has 1217, Bernie Sanders has 914. So Joe Biden, as you were saying, Brian, has the comfortable lead. But there was a time, maybe it's a distant memory for us all now earlier this year, when there was a crowded field of potential nominees. And some of them won delegates too. We had Elizabeth Warren, she won 81 delegates, Michael Bloomberg, 55. And they don't just disappear after the election, do they? No, they don't. And it depends on the type of delegate. So there's three types of delegate. You have a statewide delegate, you have a district level delegate, and you have a super delegate. If you've won statewide delegates and you've then been knocked out of the race or you've dropped out of the campaign altogether, your delegates will be split proportionately between the remaining candidates with the candidate who did better in the state getting more than the other candidates. So, for example, in a California, won by Bernie Sanders, all those California delegates, they'll get split between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, but Bernie Sanders getting slightly more because he won the state, he did better in the state. District-level delegates are different. They become free agents and they can vote for whoever they want in the national convention whenever that takes place, as we discussed earlier. We don't know if or when that will go ahead. They will become free agents. They can vote for whoever they want. Typically, though, if you were, for example, a Michael Bloomberg supporter and then Michael Bloomberg dropped out and endorsed Joe Biden, you would go with who your candidate endorsed. Then there's the superdelegate. We heard a lot about the superdelegate back in 2016 because Hillary Clinton used a lot of superdelegates to defeat Bernie Sanders. Their role has changed now. They're not. These would be very senior officials within the Democratic Party. Their votes carry a lot of weight, but those votes will not come into play in the first round of balloting in the convention. They'll only come into play if there's a second round of balloting. But right now, as you said, looking at the numbers, Joe Biden has that lead of around 300 delegates above Bernie, Sand- above Bernie Sanders. He's not quite unsurmountable yet, but he's getting there. He's very, very close. He doesn't need to do particularly well in the upcoming ones. Bernie Sanders would need to pull off virtual miracles in the upcoming ones. Reading some interesting reports at the weekend, that's a lot of talk now, that many senior figures within the Bernie Sanders campaign are urging him to drop out and that he himself has spoken publicly to people that he trusts about the prospect of dropping out. And interesting as well, a lot of people say, oh, will it be another Hillary, Bernie, where Bernie clings on to the bitter end and inflicts a lot of damage on Hillary. But then others would say it's different this time. The difference is that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders actually have a pretty good relationship and the two campaigns talk, whereas, as we all remember, the Sanders and the Clinton campaign back in 2016 did not like each other at all. They had a terrible relationship. Now, at least, there is this channel of communication and the two campaigns are talking to each other. They're talking to each other, but it has taken them a while to figure out how they're going to talk to the public and to voters, especially due to uh, the pandemic at the moment. A lot of them have been trying to take their campaigns online. I think it's safe to say that we've gone into a digital race. You know, Joe Biden in particular, he's working to expand his campaign efforts amid the pandemic. He's really experimenting with podcasts and other broadcasts. It's amazing that, you know, what moms and dads are always able to do, especially in your families, is give people hope. I want to welcome all of you to a family town hall on COVID-19 with Vice President Biden, Dr. Joe Biden. But this could be very difficult for Joe Biden. The whole appeal of him is that he connects better with voters 
at in-person events rather than on screen. Usually he's been criticised for those on-screen performances because they just haven't translated well. You're right. That sort of one-on-one him looking down a camera, he is not good at that. And he's been doing a lot of that because that's nothing else he can do. He set up a basement, a studio rather, in his basement. He does TV interviews morning, noon and night if he can. You'll see him on the breakfast shows. You'll see him on the late night TV talk shows. You'll see him on the news networks throughout the day doing as many interviews as he can, trying to get his message out. It's not always good. He has struggled. He has fumbled. He's looked down at notes. He's lost his train of thought. And of course, the Trump campaign then are very quick to take all his fumbles and edit them together in clever little videos and tweet them out and saying, do you really want this guy to be your president? You know, so he has been put, as you said, Jackie, in a place where he's not comfortable. It's not his comfort zone. He's better off being out and about, meeting the public and showing that warmth that people like about him. He's in a very sterile environment now. He has to stick indoors. He has to compete. And as we've discussed in the past... He is competing with a U.S. president who every evening gets up on the podium in the White House and delivers a two-hour press conference talking about the coronavirus. Yes, but it's nonetheless, it's Donald Trump talking, beaming into people's TV rooms. And as Donald Trump has been quick to remind us all repeatedly, those press conferences are getting very high viewership ratings. Another thing the pandemic has done, it's also unearthed once again racial issues in the United States. We saw Senator Elizabeth Warren warning about no racial data being available from the figures and the problems that that might cause. And it's a huge problem because the fear is that... African-American communities, Hispanic communities are being disproportionately hit by this virus. It's particularly hitting those poorer areas with minority communities in them. And it's a big, big problem. And yes, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren there. And one of her big things was calling for, can we at least get the data here to prove this, to show that this is an issue, that there's a racial divide here, and that those races are getting disproportionately affected by that illness. Why do we need the data? Because then she says we can skew the healthcare, we can skew the funding, and we can help these areas in a greater way way if we knew that they are the ones that are affected. But yes, the general belief is that they are being disproportionately affected. So let's get deeper into this, Brian. Kylie Scales, Managing Director for Black Lives Matter Global Network is here. Hi, Kylie. Hi. Kylie, several leading Democrats, including um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, have come out recently and they've called for more a detailed breakdown of the kinds of people, the racial divide affected disproportionately by the coronavirus. And the big fear, of course, is that it's African-American communities, Hispanic communities that are being hit harder by this virus. Is that your own experience? Is that what you're hearing on the ground? Absolutely. Um, I mean, look at the report that just came out of Michigan, where uh, uh, black people can comprise 40 percent of the coronavirus deaths, but in fact only make up of 14 percent of the populations. Um, This virus exposes what we've been fighting for for decades, um, which is equality, um, equal access to health care, more equality in terms of economics. Um, So all of those things clearly play a role in this virus and is exposed and and exacerbated in this moment. Um, And so fewer black people have access to private health care. 
Black people are on the front lines and are uh, considered essential workers. So uh, many Black people are um, mail carriers, work in hospitals and things of that nature. So uh, we're more exposed. Many of us are single parent households and can't really um, not work. And many of us have our grandparents that are taking care of children who that, that further exposes grandparents. So it's, it's a series of, of issues. Yes. There are some really stark figures out there as well when you talk about African-Americans being more vulnerable to the virus. High blood pressure is most common in non-Hispanic black adults. Black people have the highest death rate from heart disease and are more likely than white people to have diabetes as well. Yes, that's also true. There are a lot of pre-existing conditions back stemming to um, lack of adequate health care. Um, and nutrition in many of our communities uh, that leads us to have a higher rate of those pre-existing conditions that impact um, that impact the uh, mortality rate around this illness. So absolutely, those are also reasons, yes. Can you lay a foundation for us here, you know, about this pandemic? And it may seem to be like a simple question and know where to start, but how and why are black people in the United States, you know, they seem to be on the back foot when it comes to fighting COVID-19. The the virus just really exposes a lot of the issues that we've been bringing to the forefront all along, right? And so really making sure that um, black people have the opportunities and the provisions and the protections um, that are necessary in this moment and beyond is critical. Um, one of the things that Black Lives Matter is doing um, is we've put together a petition um, that has been circulating that we want to um, satellite to lawmakers um, to let them know that these are that there are things that we need um, and again that we've been fighting for for decades um, that that are critical in this moment and the petition includes things like widespread testing so um, when you hear about folks getting tested and many of those people um, are, are rich and not even showing symptoms like how do we make sure that there's widespread testing so that all communities are able to understand and know what their status is and know how to protect themselves um, and and their communities um, we need emergency food and shelter for those that are hungry and that are homeless in these moments that those problems become more real. Um, we need a, a plan for the, the more vulnerable, the incarcerated population, those who have very short, who only have a little bit of time left um, in their uh, in their sentences, those are who are nonviolent. What about those people in those air, in those places that don't have, in, in prisons that don't have the protections that are necessary where the virus can spread rampantly? Um, we need obviously more access to health care and also mental health care um, and, and a moratorium on evictions and utility cutoffs. I mean, these are just basic common sense applications and common sense solutions to a lot of these problems. Uh, if folks can't work, folks can't pay bills, and this will um, continue to be an issue. When you see, Kylie, big name celebrities, wealthy people talking in the media about, oh, I think I have it, I got a test, I got my results in like in a matter of hours, does that frustrate you? And do you see that there's almost this divide within the virus that those with access to health care and money seem to be getting tested very, very fast. Yes, and that will continue until we could, and we will continue to demand different. We will continue to demand 
um, that all people have access to um, to uh, testing because as people talk about the virus doesn't discriminate, the virus doesn't discriminate, but this country does. Um, and when America sneezes, uh, black people get pneumonia. So we have to make sure um, that we continue to vocalize what we need, um, that our communities are sustained and cared for because it, it, it's, it's beyond frustrating. It's just kind of what we see every day in many different ways and many different levels. And this virus really just exposes that more acutely. Kylie, can I just move beyond maybe COVID-19 for a little while and look at election 2020, which of course would have been the big talking point of this year had the virus not hit. We hear a lot about how African-American voters typically skew towards Democrat and even within that, how African-American voters typically skew towards Joe Biden. Is it fair to lump all African-American voters into one? I know from an Irish-American perspective, there was this belief that Irish-Americans voted as a bloc, but recent studies have shown that doesn't really happen anymore. It's a diverse community. Everybody's different. Everybody has their own beliefs. What's your own take when people do try to sort of lump the African-American vote into one? Well, that's... Um, uh, you, you pretty much said it. You've experienced it um, in the Irish community. It is um, black people are not a monolith. We don't vote the same. Um, we're not to the, our vote shouldn't be taken for granted. Our vote should be earned. These are all the things that I'm sure you've heard and you know as well. Um, and it's especially important in this moment and beyond um, as we think of black voters as lifestyle voters, not as event voters, as folks that really incorporate voting um, into their overall lifestyle, who vote all the way down the ballot, who vote to impact the material conditions in their lives. Um, those things vary by community, um, by individual. Um, and so uh, Democrats really need to focus on earning the black vote um, and in really amplifying um, and reflecting the needs of our communities and the needs of, our, of, of each and every one of us. Do you think any I suppose candidate- there was some hard, sorry, Jackie. No, go on, continue, Brian. I suppose there was some hard data, you could say, with the Joe Biden primary vote. He seemed to do very well among African-American voters. Why do you think, what is the Biden effect there among certain African-American communities that he does well? Is a lot of it the Obama effect that people would still associate him very positively with President Obama? Uh, Probably. And that makes a lot of sense um, that folks will uh, associate uh, Joe Biden um, with President Obama. That that does make a lot of sense. But I think we do have to um, continue to peel the onion, um, continue to make sure that that black folks are reflected um, in all areas of um, uh, of the election cycle, lowering the the um, barrier of entry for all black people to make sure that we are not um, disenfranchised because there is a we've talked to a lot of folks as Black Lives Matter. We've talked to a lot of people around the country, um, a lot of voters, both high propensity, low propensity. Um, our group is particularly focused on um, millennials. So I think that you'll see there's an age divide in that statistic. Um, you might see that the older uh, black folks are voting for Joe Biden, but millennials need a little more or are not voting at all. Um, and so Black Lives Matter really focuses on um, uh, uh, captivating millennials and engaging millennials so that they are not at risk of disenfranchisement. You were talking about earning the black vote there. On both sides of the political divide, do you think any candidate or potential candidate has earned the black vote yet? I mean, no. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of work to be done in order to... It's not a... It's not a it's not a one-shot deal. It's not like there's no magic bullet. Like there, you have it, it's a consistent 
um, process of engagement um, and reflection. So only 5% of electeds are black people. So how do we, you know, how do we change that? And how do we leverage that, that group into t- speaking directly to a whole d- a demographic of individuals who will not only vote, but run for office, uh, uh, you know, someday. So it's not as simple as um, has the black vote been earned? Okay, great. No, it, it is a consistent practice of ensuring that you have legacy voters, voters that vote not just specifically for an event, like we may have seen when Obama was elected, but they vote as part of their lifestyle. How will this shadow of COVID-19 and the coronavirus, this pandemic, how will that translate into election 2024, Black Lives Matter? Does it change things in terms of what's important? Well, COVID-19 has already changed things in terms of this election. Um, We're already seeing um, primaries um, are postponed. Um, We are questioning the proper method of voting. Um, We're wondering if we're we're talking about um, early voting. We're talking about vote by mail, which is um, heightened um, conversation around that. As we know, states do voting very differently. Um, in each state. And so what we need to do is ensure that our states are um, creating very common sense solutions for all people to be able to vote and and access voting. Um, We need to make sure that all states adopt vote by mail, um, that all states provide ballots to individuals, not expect folks to go get ballots. Um, We must ensure that those ballots are postage paid um, and that those people are able, that people are able to mail in their votes um, and not worry about finding postage. We have to be able to ensure that um, our that those ballots are counted um, upon postmark date, as long as they're postmarked by election date. These are all these are such only a few of the key issues um, that we all need to focus on in order to make sure that this election day um, is reflective of the citizens of this country. So, Norm, how's everything in Florida? Um, actually, it's pretty nice. I'm, I'm getting a big taste of old age. I'm on a rocking chair on the back porch. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry, we need my... Hey, Pop-Up, you hear me? Yes, I do. Thinking about everything that has happened in the last, I think it's two weeks since we talked to you, how do you feel about the Trump administration's response now? First, first of all, you know, having been around for a long time through World War II, et cetera, I would be a fool to expect everything to go right. We are human beings after all. I don't, I don't remember any war or any crisis that was handled well, um, including there were plenty of signs we could have avoided 9-11. So why would I expect that it would proceed seamlessly? Can we ask a question of Matthew there, if you can hear us, Matthew? Matthew, you as the Joe Biden supporter, we were discussing earlier, myself and Jackie, how he's been kind of confined now to his basement. He's doing TV interviews out of his basement. He's had some gaffes. He hasn't had great interviews. Are you following his campaign now that he's been confined to indoors? And do you think he is struggling as a result because he can't get out and about and meet people, which is what Joe Biden is better at doing? 
And I think he's done a great job of providing leadership um, for the country, providing some of the reassurance and some of the expertise in public health information that the Trump administration has just been failing to deliver. Um, you know, in, in times like this, um, we've needed to act like one nation instead of 50 states. But if you look at the responses that have been developing across the country, they varied a ton state to state. There are many Republican states right now where they haven't even put in orders to shelter in place. In Georgia, they reopened state businesses or state beaches this past weekend as cases have been rising. And I feel very lucky in New York, even though we're in a very bad situation where things are really scary right now at 123,000 cases and more than 4,000 deaths um, to have the leadership of Governor Cuomo, where even if the news is bad, we feel like he's being honest with us. And I feel like Joe Biden's messaging has been honest. It's been real. It's been sympathetic and emotional. And he's been connecting with people and reassuring people where Trump has only been talking about himself and trying to push sham remedies that even Dr. Fauci at the CDC says there's no evidence backing up. Why should we sit on our hands while people are dying? We don't have anything else. Norman, do you remember um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a state official in Texas who basically said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. That he had no problem sacrificing himself as a grandparent um, so the economy, the U.S. economy, will be okay due to this pandemic. If, if your time comes, your time comes. So you can kind of understand where he's coming from a little bit, can you? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see where he's coming from. And I see the level of death that's surrounding us in our neighborhoods. Every time I open up my Facebook feed, I see more people whose families are being destroyed. We lost a prominent firefighter in our neighborhood yesterday who was a 9-11 first responder to COVID-19. Um, every one of these deaths is preventable. And just listening to Governor Cuomo say, and listening to doctors in the neighborhood, doctors I know, people who I went to school with, saying that they need more medical supplies, that they need more ventilators, and listening to Trump basically cast askance on those cries for help, those pleads for assistance from our federal government that we pay taxes to as they refuse to help us, it's heartbreaking. And Pup Pup, I'm glad you're not in New York right now because I couldn't bear the thought of you going to a hospital at your age and my grandpa being told that he's too old to be put on a ventilator because there simply aren't enough. Governor Cuomo had the opportunity to buy thousands of ventilators years ago and he had better things to what he thought were better things to spend money on. Nobody's blaming Cuomo for not having bought those ventilators. Don't forget, it's, this has been very rapid. It's only been months the beginning of the whole thing. We luckily bought a little time with Trump stopping flights from China, which Biden would never would not have done. We know that because he said that. Listen, Matthew Wigler and Grandpa Norman, thank you so much for joining us on State's Mind. 
Pop up, I love you. Stay safe and healthy, please, and keep calling every day. I love you too, man. So, Brian, we will be back next week during Easter, but it'll be a little bit later in the week. Yeah, we might be back, not usually the day that we're on, maybe a day or two later. It'll be interesting to see, as we know, Donald Trump in recent weeks has called for those churches to be packed on Easter. He rode back on that. He's now enforcing his restrictions. The restrictions won't be lifted by Easter. But there are many reverends and pastors out there who are continuing to hold church services in defiance of those restrictions and those lockdowns. So it'll be interesting to see what Easter brings next week. Yeah, definitely. I think we should delve in a little bit deeper into that one. But um, we've got you covered during your quarantine time anyways over the Easter. So better than Tiger King or whatever it's called. (laughs) Way better. (laughs) Listen, by this time next week, you'll have to have watched it. I will. I'll have caught up by then, I promise. Brilliant. (laughs) Chat to you then, Brian. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie. Talk to you. Bye bye.